0: This month marks the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Now, both government and commercial enterprises are looking far beyond Earth's orbit for new areas of exploration. But what happens to our bodies after long-duration spaceflight? And how do you treat injuries that occur in zero gravity? This is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice
1: check. Station, this is the Wall Street Journal. How do you hear us?
2: Space Station, I have you loud and clear and welcome.
0: If a medical emergency arises on the way to Mars, astronauts will have to handle it with scant supplies and the best medical advice perhaps millions of miles away.
3: There's a big push to have a manned mission to Mars by the 2030s, and we need long-term data of what happens to the human body during that time.
1: Now, this is a problem that has puzzled and bothered NASA since the onset of human spaceflight more than half a century ago.
0: And with companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX betting big on commercial space travel, studying the long-term effects of space on humans is more critical than ever. Doing so could also improve our healthcare systems on Earth, changing how we treat diseases and manufacture drugs.
1: When we start thinking about sending human beings really far out into space. The Wall Street Journal's Robert Lee Holtz. To Mars, to the asteroids. On voyages that might take years, hundreds of millions of miles from the nearest doctor, from the nearest surgeon, from the nearest hospital, emergency room. We are actually are kind of conducting a very pure, open-ended experiment in the technology of medicine.
0: In space, even the most minor medical situations aren't so easy. To start, there's little or no gravity to hold things or people down. Even simple CPR is all but impossible under weightless conditions.
2: You really have to be careful because everyone is at risk during any sort of medical procedure that we do up here, even a simple blood draw, because those fluids can go in any direction.
0: And researchers in Boston are studying how astronauts can best manage these kinds of problems, with an emergency room that mimics the International Space Station's medical bay.
3: Explosion well, what just happened? Was it an
1: explosion? to get
0: a In this encore edition of The Future of Everything, we examine medicine beyond Earth.
2: My name is Serena anand Chancellor. I'm a flight engineer up here on board the International Space Station for Expedition 56 and 57.
0: She's video chatting with reporter Jennifer Strong via satellite.
2: Some people think that I was only launched to the space station because I was a physician. And the truth is we do not have a doctor on every mission. So when you come into the astronaut corps, whether you're a physician, a military test pilot, a chemist, an engineer, you come in and we are trained equally across the board and in everything, including space station systems, how to do spacewalks. Now that being said, because I am a physician, if we were to have an event up here in the space station, of course I would step in with my expertise. From a young age, Chancellor wanted to work for NASA. In college, she focused on math and science.
4: Eventually, she went to medical school.
2: Aerospace medicine is the study of, for the most part, normal people in extreme environments. And I said, well, that is the neatest career I've ever heard. That kind of marries these two loves that I have. There's a lot to consider when it comes
4: to human health in outer space, including radiation, which becomes more of a problem the farther we travel.
2: Certainly as we leave the protection of Earth, the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's magnetic field, the shielding of ISS, which is pretty thick and protects us from a lot of that radiation, as we expand out beyond that towards Mars, we are not as well protected and have to take a look at how we provide that shielding, how the human body responds to that radiation during a very long trip. There's also limited room for diagnostic tools and other supplies. People say, well, what can you do up here? Well, we can do basic suturing. If someone were to get, um, you know, a decent cut or so, we can stitch that up. We certainly have all kinds of bandages and splints. We have a host of medication, including IV medication if needed, if we were to get some sort of infection. But the unique environment presents challenges even the most experienced doctors on Earth
4: haven't encountered.
2: Traditionally, on the ground, on Earth, gravity is holding both the patient and the person treating the patient on the ground. You don't have to worry about being stable. Up here, restraining yourself is of the utmost importance. So we have a special way to strap somebody down should they need to be restrained. And then we also have ways of strapping the operator down. What we've found in training scenarios, however, is that the easiest way for someone on orbit to perform CPR is to actually flip upside down and put their feet on the ceiling and use their legs to push. It is much harder for us to, quote-unquote, kneel next to the patient and hover over them and perform CPR. It's too difficult to hold ourselves down. Then there's the issue of how
4: fluids respond in microgravity, making even a simple cut risky.
2: So if you were to get a simple cut on the skin, what we call a venous bleed, that blood will actually pool and spread at the site. It doesn't just fall down to the ground like it does on Earth. If it were a more serious bleed, like from an artery, that is going to shoot and it's going to keep on going until it hits the next surface. Which begs the question, how does one prepare for situations like this? We do have simulations that we run as a crew, not only performing CPR using a defibrillator or an AED, which we do have up here on station, how to inject certain medications. Um, We actually spend quite a number of hours practicing what we would do for those worst-case scenarios. We also do take a lot of crew members um, to a hospital, a local hospital setting, to let them practice, do things like suturing, like putting in an IV, so that the first time they do it isn't up here on board the space station. Back on Earth, doctors at Brigham and Women's
4: Hospital in Boston are developing procedures astronauts may need during missions to Mars, near Earth asteroids, or the Moon. The hospital's Stratus Center for Medical Simulation can mimic characteristics of a spacecraft medical bay minus the zero gravity.
2: It's a lot more nerve wracking um, and anxiety provoking to feel like you don't necessarily have familiarity with all the equipment.
4: Andrew Ayers is an emergency medicine doctor both in real life and in the simulator. That stress can be compounded by the fact that most astronauts are not physicians.
2: So the procedure itself is not that different, but everything leading up to it and the stressors um, that play into making the right decisions at the right time, I think, are a lot more significant for astronauts who are potentially out of practice or aren't kind of as used to doing this in real time.
4: We're inside a simulator built to look like a lunar outpost. Participants are confined in a cramped space with hoses and equipment, and through a small round window, we see an image of the lunar landscape.
2: We have things set up in a bunch of different kits, so there's kind of a minor procedure or surgical type kit, there's a respiratory kit, we have a diagnostic kit, so that would have things like um, monitoring cables, we have a stethoscope.
4: In one scenario, a broken panel on the lunar module causes a gas leak, and Andrew is exposed. Have a smoke here. They hook him up to an EKG to monitor his heart and call Mission Control. Communication is slow, the same as what astronauts can experience in space. Working with a team back on Earth.
5: Well, what just happened was it an explosion. <laughs> is not, Andrew is Andrew, put this on you need to get a
1: nebulizer.
4: The team is able to power down the module, which stops the alarm and the leak. But there's another complication. Andrew is the only physician on board, so the rest of the crew must attend to his medical needs with little knowledge of proper procedure... Or of medical equipment.
2: What do I do with this? What do okay. I do with this? Open, it, and Open it. It. it, put it in there. Yeah, just put it in there. Turn the oxygen on. Can you, can Actually, you turn the oxygen there, on, Roger? And, uh, turn it uh, on. do we put this thing? On. Uh, no, turn, turn on. it on. Let me get the tubing. Let
5: me get the tubing. <coughs> Is that all?
2: What do I do now? Yeah. Turn the oxygen
4: on. After giving him yeah, oxygen, on, the team must switch focus to fixing the broken panel on the module. Managing competing priorities like these is part of the training for all participants, including those playing the role of mission control. I'm Jamie Robertson, and I'm the Assistant Director of Simulation-Based Learning
2: here at Stratus.
4: It would be very challenging for someone on Earth to work through the various difficulties. For some things, they're able to see data, but they're relying on the people who are on the moon with the sick person to be the eyes and ears to tell them what's really going on. And so it's a lot of back and forth and trust and communication between the groups to try
2: to coordinate a lot of the work that needs to be done in order to save the patient. We try to provide challenges that are realistic and, you know, they require a high degree of performance and efficiency in terms of communication.
4: Andrew Ayer.
2: So you could actually have to really, you know, be careful with the team dynamics and get the right things done to solve the events. And any break along the way in terms of communication or medical care or any of that can be, you know, completely catastrophic to the mission or a singular life.
1: When we start thinking about sending human beings really far out into space, to Mars, to the asteroids, on voyages that might take years— hundreds of millions of miles from the nearest uh, doctor, from the nearest surgeon, from the nearest hospital emergency room. We are actually are kind of conducting a very pure, open-ended experiment in the technology of medicine.
4: The Wall Street Journal's Robert Lee Hotes.
1: Now, this is a problem that has puzzled and bothered NASA since the onset of human spaceflight more than half a century ago. And they certainly take the health and well-being of their astronauts very, very seriously. I mean, they awarded, for instance, $246 million just to Baylor Medical College to study space medical issues and there are many other places that this is a full-time endeavor. European Space Agency does the same thing. But truth be told, when it comes to sending human beings into space, the world's space agencies avoid... Health problems in orbit the old-fashioned way. They just screen people who might have some pre-existing condition that would interfere with their ability to perform.
4: That strategy might not work as well for missions that take humans beyond Earth's orbit or further than the moon.
1: More recently, though, as Space officials, both in uh, public space agencies, but also in the private launch business, are starting to talk quite seriously about long-duration missions to places like Mars or to the asteroids. I mean, you're talking about people living in a very cramped space container, crews of six or a dozen, for years at a time. Far, 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 far from anything resembling medical help. I mean, they're really going to be on their own, and this has upped the stakes for space medicine considerably.
4: It also means that the effects of microgravity will wear on astronauts' bodies for longer. Research shows that living in zero gravity affects digestion, cardiovascular health, bone density, sleep, and muscle tone. On board the space station, crew members run on a specially designed treadmill called T2. So
0: let me show you how we do it here. This is our treadmill.
4: Astronaut Karen Nyberg explains how it works.
2: I love to run when I'm on Earth. Luckily, we have the capability to run here on the space station, too.
4: Obviously, in space, we need something to keep us on the ground when we're running. What we use is a harness,
2: which is very much like a backpacking harness, and the straps are adjusted so that the load is evenly distributed between your shoulders and your hips, just as if you were backpacking. We attach, by these rings the harness to a system of hooks and bungee cord. You can see there's some stretch in the bungee cord.
4: And the training sessions are pre-selected by the medical team back at Mission Control. Click
2: OK, and then I'm ready to run.
3: At the moment, astronauts need to do about two hours of exercise in space just to try and prevent the severe muscle wasting that they get.
4: Natalie Schur is a clinical research fellow at the University of Nottingham. She's part of a team studying the impact of weightlessness on muscle loss and insulin resistance.
3: The main reason we're conducting this study is to find out how quickly some of the detrimental changes occur during inactivity. And what we particularly look at uh, is the onset of insulin resistance, which is a precursor to type 2 diabetes, and the onset of muscle atrophy, so wasting away of the muscles. And the reason that we're conducting this is at the moment there's a big push to have a manned mission to Mars by the 2030s, and we need long-term data of what happens to the human body during that time.
4: To simulate the effects of extended weightlessness, the study requires volunteers to stay in bed for three days with the bed slightly tilted.
3: They have to perform everything in bed, so they eat in the bed, they can do work in the bed, and all toileting and showering is in a horizontal position as well, and we have special facilities for that. And she says the results of the study could also help improve lives on Earth if you actually get healthy people to become very inactive, you can mimic or recreate all of the changes that happen in an aging population. So what our team particularly thinks through the experiments that we undertake is a lot of the changes with aging aren't from aging, they're actually from inactivity. So if we can keep the population very active, we're actually reducing biological aging.
4: Participants' muscular systems are constantly monitored through a series of tests during their stay.
3: On the day that they arrive, um, they get top-up of something called a stable isotope tracer. So these are non-radioactive tracers that we can measure how quickly they build up or break down muscle. So they get top-ups of that drink throughout the study. They also have a muscle biopsy of their thigh on the first day that they arrive and the next day. And that's trying to see acutely, are they losing muscle just from being inactive or in bed for 24 hours? Then... They get a few blood tests, and again, that is to measure the level of tracer in their blood.
4: Researchers also test how resistant they become to insulin, a hormone produced by the pancreas to regulate the body's blood sugar. If an astronaut's sugar levels or other vitals change enough to affect their health, there has to be a way to get them back to normal. Here on Earth, a patient can take medication, but these have expiration dates which complicate their use on long-duration
2: space flights.
5: So right now drugs are made in big facilities for you know several years until the patent runs out and then typically at the end of the lifetime of the drug the facility is retooled to do something else. My name is Lee Cronin I'm the Chair of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow in the UK rather akin to the old-fashioned printing press where you'd basically set it up to print a different book and so the information and the setup to make the drug is gone. By um, us developing a way of manufacturing the material using a 3D printed blueprint, we retain that forever.
4: His research group is studying how 3D printed medicine could one day become a mass market reality. He says the first step is to 3D print the intricate tools needed to synthesize a drug.
5: It's a bit like uh, 3D printing a cocktail maker. And then all you do is you inject the right alcohol and the right fruit juice or whatever, and out comes the perfect cocktail that you've designed before, digitally reproducible.
4: Software then models those steps in 3D as a system of building blocks, like a blueprint. This blueprint can be fed into a 3D printer or shared with others, which could also be a time saver here on Earth. Machine learning and algorithms could also help us build stronger, customized medicines more cheaply it 's like using GPS to find the best route in traffic
5: This might change access to medicine for a lot of people, and I think that it's it's an important discussion that we need to have so access to medicine is a big problem in the developing world, and also obviously in the in the in the rich world, as it were, where the medical treatments are becoming ever more expensive and I would like very much that that um, uh, that we start to have that debate about how we can make things cheaper and more accessible and more reliable.
4: But back in space, we face another challenge with medicine, and that's figuring out whether the drugs we develop on Earth even work well there. Again, astronaut Serena Anand, Chancellor on the International Space Station.
2: That's actually something we're studying right now, and that's the field of pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. We are actually, medicines that we have up here on board the space station, we resupply at a regular rate. And when we bring those medicines back down to the ground, they are doing studies on those medicines right now. Because you're right, we really don't have a good sense of, do we have the same amount absorbed in the body as we would on the ground, how long are those medicines lasting up here? You know, we have a different radiation environment up here in the space station than we do on Earth. How is medicine impacted by that? And on the same token, if we go to Mars, how are our medicines gonna last? Could we find a way to 3D print those medicines with the right material? Because if our medicines expire every six to 12 months on the ground, we're not gonna make it out to Mars. Right now, it's a great question to ask because this is something that is very real, and certainly in the next five to ten years, we need to think about.
0: In our next episode, we look back at the technology that facilitated one of the most iconic moments in human history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The Apollo Guidance Computer steered the Apollo Lunar Module to the moon. It also laid the foundation for much of modern computing, from the cockpit of commercial airliners to our smartphones.
5: It may be one of the most, if not the most, important
0: computer ever built. We meet a small-town businessman who found one of these Apollo computers and is bringing it back to life. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Daniela Hernandez, Jennifer Strong, Robert Lee Holtz, and Brian Gutierrez. With help from Matt Luke, Alex Strout, Dipti Kapadia, Harmandir Baja, George Downs, and Stephanie Ilgenfritz. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green.
3: Station that concludes the event. Thank you, Wall Street Journal and all participants. Station, we are now resuming operational audio communications.